You are listening to Sparking Wholeness with Erin Carey, where we talk about all things related to nutrition for mind, body, and soul. Are you ready? Let's do this. Hey, everybody, it's Erin Carey. Welcome back to Sparking Wholeness. Today, I'm sitting down with Cynthia Thurlow. She is a nurse practitioner, author of the best-selling book, Intermittent Fasting Transformation. She's a two-time TEDx speaker with her second talk, having more than 14 million views and the host of The Incredible, I'll add that in there, Everyday Wellness Podcast. I really enjoy that podcast. With over 20 years experience in health and wellness, Cynthia is a globally recognized expert in intermittent fasting and women's health. Her mission is to educate women on the benefits of intermittent fasting and overall holistic health and wellness. So they feel empowered to live their most optimal lives. So welcome Cynthia to the show. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to the conversation. I'm so excited about this because just the topic of intermittent fasting just by itself is polarizing. There's a lot of back and forth. I mean, you go on social media and you get so many different answers to the question. So let's talk just What are the benefits of intermittent fasting? Why are you a proponent to begin with? Yeah, well, I think it really starts with, you know, my own story. And I think for a lot of listeners that will resonate with this, I was the typical perimenopausal female, you know, the 10 to 15 years preceding menopause. And even though I'm this traditionally trained uh, healthcare provider, nothing prepared me for perimenopause. Absolutely nothing. Not my mom, not my GYN, not my girlfriend's. And so I came to intermittent fasting with a desire to lose weight initially, like a lot of women, but I stayed for all the other benefits. So when we talk about the benefits of intermittent fasting, many people will say, I want to do fasting because I want to change body composition. I want to lose weight. And and I can respect that because I've been there, but they stay for all the other benefits, you know, the improved cognition, more mental clarity. Um, improved biophysical markers for a lot of people. Once they start intermittent fasting, they have lowered blood pressure. They have improved lipid profiles, their blood glucose, their blood sugars improved um, gut health, you know, as one upregulation of a sciencey term called autophagy, which is when our body in an unfed state is getting rid of diseased and disordered uh, mitochondria and other organelles. And then even thinking about reducing our risk of certain types of cancers, as well as neurocognitive disorders like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, which I think a lot of women in middle age really start, you know, getting concerned about because they think about their grandparents or maybe their parents and how things have changed for them as they've gotten older. So I think that, you know, we could go from substantive to more superficial benefits, but a lot of the benefits that I described can be available for not just women, but also men as well. But I think a lot of what I love about intermittent fasting is we can tailor it to every person's needs, to where we are in our cycle, to where we are in life stage, to where we are in terms of physical activity. And you know, to your point about there's a lot of misconceptions about fasting, we would not be here as a species if we could not go without food for extended periods of time. You know, We're no longer in this period of time in our lives where there's famines, uh, certainly not here in westernized countries, but we certainly uh, have been conditioned to believe that we need to eat snacks and many meals to be healthy. And I'm here to remind everyone, whether or not you fast or not, understanding that eating too frequently is contributing to a lot of the poor metabolic health that we're seeing, you know, the diabetes, the high blood pressure, the obesity, the insulin resistance piece that we're starting to see. So lots of benefits to intermittent fasting, 
A lot of it is um, trial and error. So what works for you or for me may not work for every single listener, uh, but there's lots of, of ways that you can integrate this into your lifestyle in a way that keeps it sustainable and reasonable. Yeah, I love that. I love the breakdown of all the benefits. I do think that, I mean, at this point, it's been well-researched. I mean, everything you've said, we can back up with the research, right? <laughs> You're not just like saying, no, this is a great idea. So I'm so glad you mentioned all of that. What is, how does it impact our hormones and balancing our hormones, especially for those of us in that, you know, over 35 range where things can get kind of wonky? Yeah. Well, I would say that it's always in the, with the understanding that in perimenopause, this 10 to 15 years preceding menopause, we become less stress resilient. So you may find if you're stressed out, your sleep is impacted. You may find that you don't manage the stress as well as you once did. You know, for me, um, as a 52 year old woman, uh, the way that I manage stress now is much different than I did even 20 years ago. So as women are navigating these changes and for many women, perimenopause starts in their, in their mid to late thirties. So if you're 37, 38 and you're like, Cynthia, nope, I'm not there yet. You probably are. Our ovaries are as old as we are. So we start going into this early ovarian aging and unlike men, we don't replenish our eggs. We are born with a finite amount of eggs, whereas men are reproducing sperm, I believe every 72 hours, if memory serves me correctly. And so as we're kind of navigating early perimenopause, late thirties, early forties, um, this is when we become less stress resilient. So you may have more fluctuations in cortisol. Cortisol is not a bad hormone, but if we're dealing with chronic unrelenting stress, we can initially have a stress response will we have elevated levels of cortisol, if cortisol goes up, guess what else goes up? Glucose, blood sugar, yep. insulin levels. Yep. Over time, if we're dealing with chronic unrelenting stress, we can wear our bodies out. And there's a term that I don't agree with, but people may be familiarized with, you know, in the terms of the media vernacular of adrenal fatigue, mm -hmm. there's no such thing as adrenal fatigue, but understanding that as we become less stress resilient, our adrenal glands really do step in to be a backup quarterback. The predominance of our progesterone, which is one of our key sex hormones is main in the ovaries. And then as our bodies are producing less and less of it in the beginning of perimenopause, our adrenal glands step in to help support our body. So first and foremost, use strategically at the right time in your menstrual cycle, intermittent fasting can be very helpful. If you are someone, however, who thinks if a little bit of fasting is good, more is better. If a little bit of exercise is good, more is better. If a little bit of food restriction is good, more is better. This is where you can get into trouble. And this is oftentimes what I see women saying, I, everything I used to do is no longer working for me. Um, I'm working harder. I'm more weight loss resistant. I have a cortisol belly. Um, my sleep is terrible. Uh, I'm constantly stressed out. I'm waking up anxious and I'm feeling like I'm panicky. Um, those can all be signs that, you know, this is a, a type of stress on the body. That's what intermittent fasting is, but it's beneficial stress in the right amount at the right time. So when we're talking about how it impacts hormones, it has the ability to impact hormones beneficially. It also has this dual edged sword where it can impact hormones quite substantially in a negative direction. Mm. And that's why I like to teach women. There's a time in our menstrual cycle to fast. And there's a time in our menstrual cycle that we should not fast. And I definitely want to ask about how to tailor fasting to our menstrual cycle. But first, this is a really great place to pause and thank our sponsor for today's episode. 
Today's episode is sponsored by Trumetta. Trumetta is a premium supplement company based out of California that strives to make self-care easy. One of their great products is mushroom coffee. It is a must for your morning routine, and I can't wait to share with you guys how I have been using my Trumetta mushroom coffee lately. I've been making a little mid-morning, mid-afternoon snack latte, if you will, using my mushroom coffee, a flavored protein powder that I really enjoy. I blend it up and I have it on ice so that it really does taste like one of those fancy coffee shop lattes, but I'm getting my protein in and I'm getting my mushrooms in. Wait till you hear all the benefits of these mushrooms. Now, when I say mushrooms, it does not taste like mushrooms. It tastes like coffee. In this blend, we have lion's mane mushroom for productivity. We have reishi mushroom for immune support, and I know we all need that this time of year. It has cordyceps to boost energy, and of course, there is caffeine to give the kick that you need every day. I have found that this mushroom blend along with the caffeine keeps me really focused and gives me energy without any kind of a crash. And it really has helped me with that post-lunch boost that sometimes I'm looking for. Start your day or your early afternoon healthier with Trumetta Mushroom Coffee and see for yourself how it helps you focus so you can get stuff done. You'll feel an uptake in your productivity every time you drink it. I know I do. Trumetta offers their best deal to date only to my show fans. You'll get a free electric mixer and 40% off the coffee plus free shipping in the U.S. So go right now to trumetta.com spark to fuel your productivity and creativity with some delicious mushroom coffee. That's T-R-U-M-E-T-A dot com slash spark. Getting back to this topic of fasting, you mentioned that fasting is a beneficial stress at the right time. So what times in our cycle are better for fasting? And what does that even look like? To give everyone some perspective, the first day of your menstrual cycle up until ovulation, and we'll, we'll think about this perfect 28 or 30 day cycle. That is the the beginning of our cycle is when estrogen predominates and estrogen is our superpower hormone. It's the hormone that allows us to get away with more intense exercise, a little bit of more fasting. Maybe if you are ketogenic or low carb, you can get away with a lower carb diet versus after ovulation when progesterone predominates. That's usually when I'll say to, to patients or clients, this is the time to do less fasting. Maybe you do 12 hours of digestive rest. And let me be clear. Everyone listening can get away with 12 hours of digestive rest. Even my teenagers who are super athletic boys, they can go 12 hours without eating and they don't negatively impact their musculature, their growth or anything like that. They don't fast. Let me be clear. Sometimes I'll get questions. My children do not fast, but digestive rest (laughs) we can do in the second half of our menstrual cycles. And that can be very helpful, not only for, you know, stabilizing blood sugar, but also reminding us that there's a time in our cycle to have our foot on the accelerator. And there's a time in our cycle to, you know, a little bit more rest and repose. Maybe that's the time to do yoga. Maybe that's the time to take a nap. Maybe that's the time to incorporate more carbohydrates into our diet. And I'm really speaking to healthy carbs, like squash, sweet potato. If you tolerate grains, um, low glycemic berries, you know, there are a lot of healthy vegetables that have carbohydrates in them. So I do find for a lot of women, it's a bit of trial and error. It's knowing where you are in your menstrual cycle. And if you're someone that's already made that transition into menopause, you know, you're 12 months without a menstrual cycle, you know, those are sometimes the female patients that have the easiest time because they're not dealing with as much hormonal fluctuations day to day, week to week. Now, do I see women who overfast? Yes. And in fact, I 
always like to kind of point this out. I am someone that has stable thyroid issues. I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's. I've never had positive antibodies. I'm very stable on medication. I can successfully fast, but I also am very cognizant. What's my sleep like? How am I managing my stress? You know, how intense was my exercise yesterday? How much am I eating enough food in my feeding window, which is a really key feature mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. helping women understand we are not talking about depleting our bodies. We are still nourishing our bodies. It's important to get those macros in, especially protein. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if your community is like this, but I find most women, if not all of them under eat protein. Yep. And as we get older, north of 40, it's a physiologic change that starts happening. Muscle loss with aging is a real thing. And so this is why I'm not a fan of OMAD. You know, I speak very outspokenly about this. One meal a day is not the way to get in an entire day's worth of protein as one example in one meal, unless you're a rock star. Like I, I have met men who will tell mm -hmm. me they can have 200 grams of protein in a meal. I don't know any woman that can do that. I certainly can't. Uh, maybe 60 grams is about the most I can get in a meal, but helping women understand that you know, the way to nourish your body while in incorporating intermittent fasting into your lifestyle is making sure you're actually eating and not over-restricting your calories, because that is a whole other issue that can become problematic. A lot of women will end up breaking their metabolism and that's yep. a non-clinical term, but I do see a lot of women that get to a point they're eating a thousand calories a day. And I'm like, your poor body is so undernourished. Of course, it's going to hold on to every single ounce of adipose tissue that you so desperately want to get rid of. And it's because your body thinks you're going through a famine. It really thinks that food is scarce. And if food is scarce, I need to hang on to all this extra energy so that I don't starve. Yes. Oh my goodness. You said so many things there that I want to circle back <laughs> to. Cause yeah, I'm just like, yes, nodding my head to everything you're saying. I think it's so important that individualization and that self-compassion, the kindness is really important because it does get hard. <laughs> If you hit that age where it's like, wait a minute, all the things that I used to do that weren't overwhelming to me or my body, all of a sudden I can't do it anymore. And so this is a way to tune in is what it sounds like you're saying. Absolutely. And I think we've done a really poor job encouraging our patients to lean into their body's cues. Mm -hmm. I think we have, and I say we as, as a, a group of healthcare professionals, I mean, obviously I've worked with patients for over 25 years and at the very beginning, I didn't teach patients to lean into what their body was telling them. Although over the last 10 years, I'm like, this is very important because if you take 10 women of a similar age and you line them all up, they're going to have differing needs, differing, you know, tolerances of carbohydrates, people who tolerate more intense exercise, not less, and really helping women understand, like, here are the cues that your body is going to share with you that you've overdone it. You know, if you work out really intensely and then you come home and you need to take a nap, if you don't recover, yep. if you are sleeping really poorly, cause you're, you're really undernourishing your body and it's just too much stress. And so helping women understand that there are signs their body will tell, is your hair falling out? Mm. Do your skin, are, are your nails breaking? Are you someone that all of a sudden your skin just suddenly is no longer as like healthy looking as it once was, or your color is off. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, and I remind people that weight loss resistance is oftentimes a sign of uh, a need to dig deeper. You know, unfortunately we have had this very reductionistic perspective on weight loss, like calories in calories out. I'm not suggesting that calories aren't important, but I am suggesting that we need to look a little deeper. There's a hormone piece. 
there is a mindset piece. There's absolutely a toxins piece, whether it's toxic thoughts, things we're exposed to in our environment. I always find that it's more than just one thing. And so helping women understand that, you know, to be kind to their bodies as they're navigating this and understanding that there's nothing worse because I heard this from my well-meaning physician. Oh, Cynthia, you're in your forties now, you know, what's an extra five or 10 pounds. And I remember looking at her and just saying, but the five or 10 pounds shouldn't be there. You know, the extra, so something is off um, given the fact I live a pretty healthy lifestyle. So helping women understand being gaslit is not the way. Um, finding the right practitioner, finding the right provider that's going to be able to meet your needs and meet you halfway because it really is a partnership. It is not a dictatorship. And, um, you know, helping reassure women that this doesn't have to be a terrifying time in their lives, that there are paths. I mean, there's certainly many of us that I think are um, encouraging women to be their own best advocates and, and creating systems and things in place. Say, these are the questions I would be asking your healthcare provider and if you notice, I'm not picking on physicians or nurse practitioners. I'm just saying healthcare providers, because there's lots of good ones that are out there. And hopefully it's the minority that are gaslighting women. I mean, I've certainly experienced that. Um, and, and I would say if I've experienced it, then probably most other women have as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And on the topic of weight loss resistance, I think that that is such an important, I like the way you even call it weight loss resistance, because there are so many women and, and I talk to these women all the time who are doing on paper. It looks like they're doing all the air quotes, right things, you know, and, and it's just not working for them. The weight's not coming off. They've gained weight instead of lost weight. So how can intermittent fasting be a benefit? How can they use this to work for them instead of against them? So they're not storing more weight. Yeah. Well, I think it really comes down to like, I talk about, um, I can't get you to sleep. If I can't get you to sleep through the night, I can't get you to lose weight. So if anyone's listening and your weight loss resistant and your sleep isn't pristine, that's the first thing to work mm -hmm. on. And because if we really look at the research on sleep, if you're sleeping less than six hours a night, we know that you have a 60%, um, greater likelihood of not being able to have well-maintained blood glucose, mm. uh, your leptin and ghrelin, which are your appetite satiety hormones, they're going to be dysregulated. We don't make good choices when we don't have enough sleep. I don't crave broccoli when I'm <laughs> sleep deprived. I'm going to crave junk. I mean, let's be realistic. Um, you know, starting with sleep and then looking at stress, you know, women will tell me I have the menopause or I have the menopot where I have a cortisol belly. And I remind women that we have 40 times more cortisol receptors in our abdomen. And that makes sense. If you're chronically stressed, dealing with a lot of stress, whether it's a divorce, someone lost a job, uh, we certainly have lived through this uh, horrific pandemic. I mean, lots of extra stress in our lives over the past four years, just as one example. But helping women navigate you know, those two pieces and then understanding like, are you eating an anti-inflammatory diet? If you are still eating the way you were at 20, you probably are not. There's a lot of inflammatory foods in our food system. And so getting back to less processed foods, you know, I just interviewed a couple people on the podcast and we were talking about 70% of most of our diets are hyper-processed foods. Is it any surprise that we are, we are addicted to food, food-like substances? So getting back to food that in a more, if you can recognize it in a natural form, that doesn't mean a bag of Doritos. That means I'd rather you eat a potato and some broccoli and some chicken than sit down with a pizza and a bag of Doritos, you know, something that's more recognizable. Um, and then, 
you know, as I find that people, women in particular are eating enough protein. So eating no less than 30 grams of protein with a meal, that's going to help with satiety. If you can keep yourself satiated, you are less likely to go searching in the pantry at 10 o'clock at night. There's also something called the protein leverage hypothesis. And I think it's helpful for women to understand this, that as our estrogen levels are dropping towards the latter parts of perimenopause and menopause, we have another hormone called follicular stimulating hormone or FSH that's going up. Estrogen's going down. It puts us in a catabolic state, which means that our bodies are actively breaking down muscle at the expense of not consuming enough protein. So I remind women, we need more protein, not less as we get older, especially North of 40. So if you're eating 40 or 50 grams of protein a day, you got to change that. Um, the important thing, the other important aspect about protein intake is that as we are losing muscle, we're losing insulin sensitivity. This is very important for metabolic health. We know that 92 to 93% of Americans are not metabolically healthy. So most people that are listening are probably unaware that they are teetering on insulin resistance. And so this is where a fasting insulin, little pearl, uh, make sure you get a fasting insulin tested. Um, there's a, there's a company called own your labs. I have no affiliation with them. It's like a $12 test. It should be between two to five milligrams per deciliter. If your fasting insulin is 20 and your weight loss resistance, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, for sure that's contributing. There can be a lot of other things that contribute. So eating enough protein, eating less processed foods, and yes, integrating intermittent fasting or just 12 hours of digestive rest for yeah. a lot of people makes a huge difference. I get messages across social media almost every day from women that are 60s, 70s, 80s, and they're like, I have been weight loss resistant for 20 years. And all I did was eat more protein and not eat after dinner. Something that simple can be that impactful. So those are good places to start. Um, I always encourage women to make sure the other piece is the exercise. I think a lot of women are still in this chronic cardio state. We've been conditioned to believe you want to do lots and lots of chronic cardio, you are better off doing two to three days of strength training and walking. You know, you mentioned you're, you're a fan of walking as am I, or zone two training. You are much better off trying to maintain muscle mass with strength training than doing five hour, five, excuse me, five hours, five miles running in your neighborhood up and down hills. I think this is a, a key differentiator, or I usually pick on orange theory fitness. I have a lot of women that come into programs and they're doing orange theory fitness, five or six days a week. They don't understand why they can't sleep, why they're weight loss resistant. I'm like, your body is chronically stressed. That is a stressful so stress. Yeah. I'm not suggesting for anyone, cause I'll get some hate mail, <laughs> I'm not suggesting there's not a place for more intense exercise, but if you are already weight loss resistance, doing more high intensity interval training, more prolonged episodes of high intensity exercise, more cardio is not per se going to be beneficial. So I think those are usually the first things that I look at. And then, then we can we can start having more. We look at more diagnostic testing. We can look at gut health. We can look at toxins. We can look at trauma. You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of good research coming out on the impact of adverse childhood events. You can actually go online. You can take, um, you know, these online quizzes. The higher the number, the more likely you are to have a history of trauma, either little T or big T trauma that impacts not only your future history of weight loss resistance, but also autoimmune disorders. And so this is certainly something as someone who had some trauma in their childhood has had multiple autoimmune conditions. 
now that I understand this, it makes a great deal of stress sense. Our, our bodies are chronically stressed. Even if we're like the duck, you know, if you ever see a duck on water, duck looks very calm from, you know, the, the water up, but underneath that duck is furiously paddling. Um, that's how most people that are dealing with that chronic uh, overactivation of the sympathetic nervous system, that's what they're typically dealing with. And so just helping people understand there are a lot of things that can contribute to why we become weight loss resistance. I mean, there's a ton to unpack, but those are certainly yeah. tangible things that people can look at. And I think that's going to give people some aha moments. Truly. Mm -hmm. I think everything you said, um, is, is relatable and is so important. And even on the topic of movement. Okay. So this is just a personal question because I've gone back and forth with, so I, I love moving my body. I move my body just about every day, more for the lymphatic support mm -hmm. than anything. And my brain, it helps my brain so much, but movement to me can be a walk. It can be slow yoga. It can be hot yoga. It can be strength training, right? It varies. And I never, I try not to overdo it. Here's the question fasted movement. Yes or no, because I'm the type of person I wake up super early in the morning. A lot of times to work out and it's, it takes everything just to, I, I don't want to stop and eat like, and it, and it doesn't feel good to stop and eat. I'm not really hungry yet. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. What do I do? What do we do yeah. if we want to fast it or no? Well, so here, here's my feeling. I've all for my entire life, I've never enjoyed having food in my stomach and trying to exercise. I'm just that person. But I no longer, you know, work out at five o'clock in the morning and then not eat till 11 or 12. So yeah. if I'm doing a day of strength training, I'm always breaking my fast earlier. So I may work out at mm -hmm. eight and I may eat by 10. So I, I think if you look at the research, there are benefits to having protein after strength training within a certain window. Um, I, I get concerned when women work out at like 4.30 in the morning and then they don't eat till two o'clock in the afternoon. I'm like, that is, you're really, especially if you're already lean and thin. And, and those are the women I worry about the most, the ones that are athletic and, you know, they're looking for high performance. If you look at research done by Dr. Stacey Sims as an example, she hates fasted exercise. Um, I think it's really dependent on what makes you feel good. Do you feel like you do best having a piece of fruit and maybe a small piece of protein before you go to the gym, great. If you feel terrible, if you eat before you go to the gym, I think it's completely fine to get your workout in, hydrate yourself, electrolytes, coffee, tea, whatever it is that you like, and then break your fast after your workout. So I think it's very dependent on the individual. The other thing that I think is very important is I, I like my female patients to get no less than hundred grams of protein in a day. Mm -hmm. Now, if someone's opening, you know, working out at 6 a.m., not eating till two, and then they close their feeding window early, they're very likely chronically under eating. And I think that mm -hmm. nourishment piece is a message that is critically important that I think every woman listening needs to hear. Fasting can be a tool, one of many tools, but if you can't eat enough food in your feeding window, you need a wider feeding window, or you need to just do the digestive rest, which is the 12 hours. That's actually not fasting, but that's okay. I mean, when I go on vacation with my family, I will eat a big breakfast with them because I have teenage boys. <laughs> and then I usually don't eat again till dinner. And I encourage people to change things up. If you're on vacation, maybe experiment. If, if you're listening and you're like, you know, I think I might be one of those people who does better eating before I exercise. There's no shame in that. Don't feel a sense of pressure because you see someone on social media doing completely the opposite. And let's be clear. There's a lot of orthorexics out there. <laughs> People who either are orthorexic or they hide their anorexia in the guise of intermittent fasting. 
And I know this because I, I watch the behaviors of other people because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a clinician. So to me, I find people fascinating and I'll kind of think to myself, hmm, I'm not sure that's a healthy behavior. But with that being said, I would do some degree of experimentation. You said, I don't feel great when I eat before I exercise. I think that's fine. But maybe on the days you lift heavy mm -hmm. or you're conscientious about strength training, break your fast earlier. That's what I've been doing. And I find that I feel a whole lot better. I'm not someone who likes to, uh, you know, push the fast for the sake of pushing the fast. Like unintentionally, some days that happens. You know, my husband and I just drove up to DC last week. Um, neither of us ate before we got in the car, which wasn't very smart. We did a bunch of shopping and my husband at like two 30 was like, oh my gosh, I really need to eat. And so we ended up going to a steakhouse, had a big steak and it was great. But I looked at him and I said, you know, better. Like, I feel like I'm talking to my kids, but I said, you know, better, like you should make sure that you plan to succeed. So for everyone listening, um, I, if someone says to me more than once, like, oh, I, I forgot to eat. I'm like, okay, well, next time we need to plan to make sure that you are breaking your fast by a certain time and you're nourishing your body because fasting is not about self-flagellation. It yep. is not about punishing your body. Unfortunately, the toxic diet culture has conditioned a lot of us to believe that things are good or they're bad. There's all this pejorative language. And the way we talk to ourselves is important. I actually just interviewed uh, Dr. Judd Brewer. He's a neuroscientist and a physician. And we were talking exactly about this behavior that we, that our internal dialogue is pretty important. So what we're saying outwardly is negative. Imagine what we're saying to ourselves on the inside. So just be cognizant of that, bring attention and awareness to it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's really good. And, and it, again, there's that room for flexibility and individualization, which is so important as far as what breaks a fast. There's also a lot of back and forth about that. <laughs> there's fat fasting, there's water fasting. There's, I mean, what do you consider to break? A oh, stevia. There's a question about things like that. Cause supposedly it doesn't spike blood sugar, like regular sugar. Although I have so many questions about that, thinking about the, um, just the cephalic phase blood sugar response. Yeah. You know, yep. so I'd love yeah. to hear your take. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm a proponent of when my patients are learning fasting, that they learn what a clean fast is. That is a fast where you are consuming bitter teas and bitter is important. There's, there's actual same thing with having plain coffee, the polyphenols in those bitter teas, green tea, black tea, plain coffee. Yes. Bitter is good. Uh, there is plant-based compounds that are actually giving our bodies information. They can upregulate fat oxidation, which is burning fat. Um, it, and it's important that bitter is a, is a compound on our tongue that is actually not going to evoke an insulin response. So you mentioned, uh, you know, this lack of clarity around artificial sweeteners around, um, you know, someone will say I can have my 500 calorie bulletproof coffee and I always remind people, if you're trying to lose weight, please don't drink your calories. That's, that's not the way to go about doing that. I'm, uh, you know, I use stevia in my feeding window. I don't love stevia in an unfed state because, you know, people will say, well, I, I tested my blood sugar and my blood glucose didn't move. And I'm like, okay, that's great. But there's actually, as you mentioned, that cephalic phase insulin response, your body's getting ready for some food because it, it, you've gotten something sweet on your tongue. So especially when someone is going from a hyper-processed diet and they're sedentary, um, I really do like my patients to understand what a clean fast is, how to break a fast properly, um, how to navigate fat fasting. So for some people, they really struggle. They are so metabolically unhealthy 
that going two or three hours without food can sometimes evoke hypoglycemia, which means low blood sugar, symptomatic low blood sugar. And so for some people, they need to do like a teaspoon of MCT oil in some coffee. And that's going to allow them to, as they're, it's like putting training wheels on a bike. <laughs> it's, it's a crutch, you know, used temporarily to get them maybe from, you know, when they wake up in the morning till their first meal. And that is very different than the half a stick of butter and five tablespoons of MCT oil that a lot of people put in their coffees or a lot of heavy cream and helping people understand dairy is insulinemic. I mean, it's, I, I'm not anti-dairy. I personally don't consume dairy because it doesn't like me, but that's <laughs> a separate conversation. So helping people understand what, what is a clean fast? What is a dirty fast? Now, if you are metabolically healthy, you're at a goal weight, having a little bit of electrolytes with stevia is not going to be a deal breaker, but for a lot of people it is because it gets their, their palates kind of primed for looking for sweetness. Yeah. And so I think you have to know yourself. What are your goals? Do you need to be strict up front, at least in the beginning? And I think most people do as they're kind of transitioning and then breaking your fast really is understanding breaking your fast is always with protein, mm -hmm. whether it's protein and fat, protein and carbs, protein, protein, protein is the most important thing, whether it's with bone broth as an example, or you sit down and you have a light meal, whether it's, you know, chicken or fish with some vegetables where you sit down and, you know, maybe you're someone that can sit down with bacon and eggs and an avocado. And that's, you know, the way that you like to break your fast. So helping people understand you don't want to sit down and have a bowl of cornflakes mm -hmm. or pastry. Like that's like one of the worst ways to break a fast largely because you're evoking such a tremendous blood sugar response and insulin response. And we know protein is the most satiating macronutrient. And again, we want at least 30 grams of protein with each meal because that will trigger something called muscle protein synthesis. You have to have this leucine threshold. And again, this muscle piece, muscle is this organ of longevity. If you're at all familiar with Dr. Gabrielle Lyons' work, I always like to kind of point out that um, she's had a tremendous influence on my work. And I always give her credit for bringing greater awareness to the mm -hmm. fact that you need the 30 grams of protein minimum. So I don't care if you have to measure out your four to six ounces of protein, be conscientious about when you're breaking your fast because you need that 30 grams minimum. And, you know, if you're a woman that's intermittent fasting, you're north of 40, you need to probably get your protein intake 40, 50 grams so that you're, you know, getting in that hundred grams a day. And so that's usually the threshold we're kind of working up towards. Yeah. And, and four to six ounces or more, most women are not likely going to be getting that just by eyeballing it. It really does make a difference to weigh or measure or whatever you need to do. Cause you're, you're probably thinking you're getting more than you are unless you're measuring. Yeah. Well, and I think we also have this, this plant-based narrative that's being oh, embraced yeah. by a lot of individuals. And I, I like to point out that most women that come to me north of 40 are struggling with too little protein intake, too many carbohydrates and the wrong types of fat. So once we start flipping things around, the people that are omnivores generally have a fairly easy time changing their macros around. Mm -hmm. If you are vegetarian or vegan at the expense of high quality protein, because the amino acid profile of plant-based proteins versus animal is not equivalent right? at the expense of carbohydrates. And so if you're already not metabolically healthy, you know, having 40, 50, 60 grams of carbohydrates in a meal at that stage of life and not enough protein is going to be problematic. So it, it's helping people understand without judgment, there's no judgment. It's always awareness. Like let's bring awareness to our food choices 
um, helping them make better choices so that they're going to get sustainable results. But I can honestly tell you that the, the women that seem to struggle the most are the vegetarians and vegans that don't incorporate like eggs or dairy because sometimes we can, you know, kind of widget the eggs or widget some of the dairy to kind of replace some of the protein, but that can be problematic if they don't do either. Yeah. I know a lot of women struggle with the concept of getting in so much meat, like steak, chicken, that, you know, and eggs. Okay. That works for them. Maybe even cottage cheese, but those who don't do dairy, like you said, or who <laughs> dairy doesn't like them that they struggle with that. So do you recommend protein powders? What are your, what's your stance on protein powders just to get to that 100 gram or yeah. more mark? Yeah. And, and so if you like, let's say you start tracking your macros tomorrow, like let's say you're going to use the app chronometer, which I have no affiliation with. I just like it because it I gives like you macros app. and micros. Mm -hmm. Let's say you start tracking and for a week, you're like, wow, I'm getting 60 grams of protein in a day. I'm not expecting anyone to go from 60 to hundred overnight. Mm -hmm. It might be that you start increasing, you know, maybe it's four ounces of protein goes to six, maybe six goes to eight. That's, you know, one way you work towards that. Um, I think the high quality protein powder, if you, I, I want you to get most of your food from things that you have to chew and swallow because it's, it's going to land differently in your body than if you're consuming a liquid, but I think a high quality protein powder, I mean, whey is going to be superior to anything else. If you don't tolerate dairy, then you know, there's other options, but small ingredient list, no junky fillers, no aspartame, no sucralose, not a bunch of guar gum and other junk. You want it to be a simplified um, regimen. And in my house, we use marigold for whey. That's, that's, they, they source from New Zealand whey. We have Equip. Um, Equip has some dairy-free, but it's made from uh, cow-derived sources, but dairy-free. Um, Truvani is a company that it's Food Babes company. It's plant-based. I'll be honest, I've never had a plant-based protein powder I like, but that is usually one I can, you know, recommend to people and say I the ingredient this is clean. Um, but I think it really comes down to aiming to get it from food sources. But if you have to have a protein shake to bump yourself over, I think there's no shame in that. I'm a realist. I mean, I'll be honest today. I had a protein shake because I was running around all over the place, doing things, getting ready for a trip. Um, I don't make that, I don't make that a, an everyday occurrence, but when it does, I don't bring any shame. And the other thing that's interesting is a lot of people will ask about amino acids, you know, uh, aminos, do you take aminos? Well, it's interesting, Dr. Don Lehman, who is like the goat of, you know, the mTOR community and, and was a predecessor to Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, he mentions, and this is kind of what I now am aligned with, if you can't get in hundred grams of protein a day, those, those aminos are probably fine. Hmm. But if you're getting in 120, 130 grams of protein and you're aiming for one gram per pound of ideal body weight, if you're getting in hundred grams, you probably don't need that. So sometimes when I travel, I will actually bring amino acids with me to kind of bolster what I'm consuming, but I really do endeavor to get it from food. It just feels differently when you chew food, it swallow, you swallow it, it sits in your stomach and you're like, okay, I'm full. I'm satiated. Yes. I'm done. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. This has been so insightful, so helpful. I mean, I know listeners are probably going to want to replay this one. <laughs> so thank you for all of your knowledge. Last question that I'd love to ask the name of the show is sparking wholeness. So if you could give one piece of advice to spark someone toward wholeness, what would it be? Well, I would say probably the most important thing you can do is work on sleep quality. And I, I don't say that to sound trite or to make it sound kind of boring, but for so many women, once they dial in on their sleep quality, it allows them to show up differently in their lives. They have less cravings. They have more energy. They have more 
um, tolerance or patience with their family members or if they're at work or with their spouse or significant other. So for me, it's sleep quality before everything else. I mean, my teenagers laugh at me because I'm usually the first person that goes to bed. Um, and if they're home in the house, I can comfortably do that. It's different if they're out and about, but sleep quality is king. That is the first thing you want to dial in on. And then if you, that I would say that it is an underrated lifestyle hack, but one that's really important. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. Well, this has been, like I said, so helpful. Where can people follow you and learn more about what you do? Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. So probably easiest to go to my website, www.cynthiatherlow.com. As you mentioned, my podcast, Everyday Wellness, you can catch it there. I'm very active on Instagram and YouTube. I have a free Facebook group called Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle backslash my name. There are men and women in that group. It is a drama-free zone. And I'd love for you to check out my book, Intermittent Fasting Transformation, which the cover is right behind me. Awesome. Yes, definitely. If you have more questions about fasting, get the book. It is, it's a great resource to have on hand because it is individualized to women in our bodies, which are so unique and always changing. And and it's a good thing. (laughs) So thank you again for being on the show. Thank you so much. The tiniest spark leads to the biggest blaze. And I hope that today's episode sparks you on a journey to healing and wholeness. Thanks for listening to Sparking Wholeness. For more information on what I do and my coaching programs, or maybe just to reach out and say, hey, find me at sparkingwholeness.com or on Instagram at sparkingwholeness. Have a fabulous week.